Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History of England, a special episode, and a very special episode it is too. You may remember that I have mentioned a historian called Dermot McCulloch along the way, Professor of Church History at Oxford University, in particular in regard to his works on Thomas Cranmer and the Reformation. I have grown to love Dermot's work for their extraordinary erudition, of course, but for their clarity and ever-present wit. And it must be said for placing a proper emphasis on the joys and liberties delivered by the English Reformation, rather than the rather dire over-emphasis on the negatives, which is sadly the modern habit. How much like an old farty do I sound now? Good Lord. So, I was furious with the man. Furious! When I'd heard he'd written a biography of Thomas Cromwell. I was furious because in my line of trade, gentle listeners, there's no time for looking back. I have read nothing but history books for seven years apart from Bernard Cornwell, obviously, but you know that goes without saying, and always reading books, looking forward to the next stage of our story of England. So, you know, the review copy I was very generously sent, well, I put it by the loo, more in hope than expectation. Every day it looked at me, and others of my family, of course, in gentle reproach. Have I focused too much on the loo thing? If so, sorry. Anyway, Imagine my delight when Brianna from Penguin Random House in the good old US of A got in touch and asked if I'd like to do an interview with the good Professor him indoors. And I said, is the Pope Catholic? Which was probably inappropriate in the context of Cromwell. Anyway, a few weeks later, there I was in Dermot's house. Obviously, I consider him best of buds now, first name terms. And the following is what we talked about. He was utterly charming and, of course, mind like a bacon slicer. I promise you, you will love this biography. And just on that, a vast amount has been written on our Thomas. And as I turned the first page, I had a slight sense of unease. Surely there is nothing new to say here. I was quite wrong. The scholarship is amazing. This is how the best historians work with material. And you can see it as you read it. And there are a series of insights that go all the way through the book. From simple ones like reassessing the character of his father to the revelation that, of course, Cromwell and Anne Boleyn hated each other, to the centrality of his relationship with Wolsey, to what happens next. The connection he makes between the players brings the period to life and uncovers so many secrets. 
If there is a criticism, it is that Dermid focuses much less on Cromwell's brutality and maybe get, lets him get away with it a little bit, though obviously it's not ignored. Nonetheless, I am utterly confident this will be the definitive biography of Cromwell for generations to come. It stands head and shoulders above anything else that's been published. Anyway, listen on and I'll put a review up as well and would love to get comments from any of you who do read it. Hello everyone, I am very honoured to be with Professor Dermot McCulloch today uh, to talk about your new book, Thomas Cromwell. Thanks for inviting me here. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. So look, I have a, a vast array of questions mm-hmm. and I'll try and get through a few of them, but it'd be quite nice to start off with why you wrote a book about Thomas Cromwell, what drew you to the subject? Oh well, I'm, as, as you know, I'm a Tudor historian and became a Tudor historian through my undergraduate years, it was right. one of the many strands I looked at, and uh, I could have gone in other directions. Uh, I thought of doing a doctorate in the Weimar Republic. I'm right. still fascinated by the, the disintegration of that society and the, the evil which followed. Mm. But I think I was too lazy to learn German idiomatically, right. uh, and I've had to learn it in later life as a punishment. But at the time, Tudor England seemed easier. Right. And also enormously fascinating. And as soon as you get into Tudor England, you get into the papers of Thomas Cromwell. So from my mid-twenties, I've been involved with his archive, which is huge, and um, then wrote a biography of his great friend, Thomas Cranmer, uh, now 30 years ago. And what does that leave? Well, uh, I, I, I couldn't bear writing a biography of Henry VIII. Right. Why is that? The, the more the, the closer you get to Henry VIII, the more you know about him, the more you dislike him. You're not a fan, are you? No, I'm not. No. I'm not. And uh, clearly, he was a fascinating character. There was charisma, but uh, uh, I just get irritated with him. And Wolsey, well, there's an interesting man, but Cromwell at the centre, really. And the whole 16th century changed after the 1530s and uh, I think my old supervisor Sir Geoffrey Elton was right in in pointing the finger at Cromwell mm. as the main man who is the figure the figure of change from early Tudor England which is a marginal place in Europe uh, to the the Tudor England at the end of Elizabeth's reign and it's it's edging its way onto into being a great power and the 1530s are the, the, the hinge period, that nine years, only nine years when Thomas Cromwell's in power. And that's presumably, well, one reason, is it, why you call it the revolutionary life for the American audience? Yes, uh, this was, of course, a, a phrase which my old supervisor, Geoffrey Elton, made into the title of a book, The Tudor Revolution in Government. Mm. I spent a bit of time in the book dismantling his revolution because, it, it, it frankly, it's rather boring. It's about bureaucracy. And there's far more which is revolutionary. The, the, the revolution in religion is the big one. And he's very much involved in shaping that, uh, not the break with Rome so much, which I think was his master's idea, mm. but the way in which it could be done and also what could be done with this break with Rome, turning it into a Protestant Reformation. That's a huge revolution. Mm. And then in all sorts of ways, he his... Actual restructuring of government in a wider sense, his bringing of Wales into the English mm-hmm. kingdom fully and, and bringing the Welsh in and you know, making, making, giving them the opportunities of becoming part of the power structure mm-hmm. and trying the same thing in Ireland. Didn't work there, disastrously, right. tragically, didn't work. Was it inevitably going to fail there? I mean, was the strategy wrong or was it just implemented in the wrong way? I think it would have needed much more persistence and consistency and financial investment than the Tudor government were prepared to give it. Mm. Cromwell saw the way forward, which was exactly the same way as dealing with the Welsh. 
and that was to bring the ruling class, the nobility, the clan chiefs, into a, an English-style nobility and make gentry out of the lesser ones. And his servant, uh, client, Sir, Sir Anthony Selinger, tried that on after Cromwell's death. And it's, you can count that as a Cromwellian plan. And the English government just didn't back it up enough. Uh, and so, hence, 400 years of wretchedness and confusion and misery followed. Mm. If only they'd listened properly to Thomas Cromwell. Yeah, indeed. Everything would have been, maybe things would have been different. Because yeah. it started off okay, doesn't it? I was also also learned how to speak, speak say, St. Ledger by reading ah. a book. Okay, so I, I'm fascinated by pronunciation. Tudor pronunciation. Right. And uh, so I've, I've done a lot of thinking about that. And one of the clues is an American clue, as, right. as you probably read in the book, that uh, the little state called Delaware tells us how one barony ancient medieval right. barony was pronounced. So on the page, it's D-E-L-A-W-A-R-R. But Delaware is right. how they pronounce it. And that tells you also all those Dela names. Mm. And then the very name Cromwell. Ah. Oh, yes. So how do we pronounce Cromwell? Well, when you go through the papers, mm. thousands of letters to him, virtually all of them spell his name C-R-U-M-W-E-L-L. Right. Now, actually, if you try pronouncing that again and again, as I have done, <laughs> I have to say it rather a lot, you find that it's actually rather difficult, much more difficult than saying Cromwell. Right. What the difficulty is, you lose the W. Mm. So that seems to me to indicate that his name was pronounced Cromwell. Right. And a wonderful writer of the early 20th century, John Buchan, wrote uh, a marvellous fantasy novel called The Blanket of the Dark, which is about the 1530s. Are we talking 39 Steps, John Buchan? That's the 39 oh, Steps yeah. man. Right. Well, he wrote one or two historical novels. Mm -hmm. And in this, the villain is none other than Thomas Crummel, ah, which right. he spells like that, C-R-W-M-L-E. Right. So I think game, set and match on right. that. Right, and that one. So, well, look, I'm constantly being told by the American listeners that they actually pronounce everything right, and we've got it wrong, <laughs> which there is some evidence for, I yes. think, isn't there? Yes, they, they very often fossilise uh, yes. older English pronunciation. Fossilise, that's the way I put it in the future. Mm. Uh, so this revolutionary period, um, one of the things actually I enjoyed particularly about the book is a feeling of connection with his past, that although this revolutionary man, his past remained important to him, was the impression I got. Yes, uh, and he came from a comparatively humble background in, in a very obscure village up the Thames from London. And um, he never really forgot that uh, and was perversely, not perversely, but I think interestingly proud of it. Mm. So that when in the end he got his barony and became a member of the peerage, uh, in 1536, he took the title Lord Crummel of Wimbledon. Now, that won't mean anything to uh, our listeners, but everyone in Tudor England would have known Wimbledon. It was a great, powerful, rich manor of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. And the Archbishop of Canterbury had to surrender it to Thomas Cromwell in 1536 uh, to support the barony. But the point was that in this big manor beside the Thames is the village of Putney, where yeah, Cromwell right. had come from. Mm. So I, I interpret this as Cromwell's uh, gesture of defiance to the rest of the right. nobility. Look, I don't care. You right. all know I'm nobody, and I've mm. come from Putney, and I'm going to wave it in your face all the time from now on, Lord Cromwell of Wimbledon. So in that way, I, I think he, he's not ashamed at all of the background. And contemporaries said that... Unlike his old master, Cardinal mm. Thomas Wolsey, he was very good to people who he'd grown up with. He didn't forget them. He was kind. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I, I admire that. Mm. 
he also seems to be kind to a wider range of people. He's hundreds and hundreds of letters, I'm, from what I see, that get written to him. Mm. And he deals with them in a, generally, not the brutal way you'd imagine. No, it, it, the, there was a brusqueness about him, no doubt, mm. and I think a, a quick temper. But he had what I call waifs and strays. Mm. Uh, and those waifs and strays could either be quite humble people who he'd known for a long time, or they could be... Uh, members of the nobility who'd f- fallen on the hard times. Mm. There's one, um, one family, the Staffords, for instance, where Edward Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, had been one of the first victims of King Henry VIII. Uh, and, and that destroyed the great Stafford Empire when Edward Stafford was executed in, uh, by the king. And that left children. Mm. And Cromwell look, looked after those children. Uh, and, and that's, again, interesting. He was uh, rather good with widows. Dowagers liked him. Uh, You you see traces of um, hilarious dinner parties in the letters when they write in, say, what a fine time you gave me the other night. And also young men, wild young men. He liked wild young men. Mm. And you, you could say that might sound a bit sleazy, but I don't think so. I think they simply reminded him of himself okay. when he'd been a teenage mm. in a, a runaway teenager in Italy and so he, he sort of softened towards these young men that the rest of the world deplored and thought that yeah. they might have the same spark I think often he was disappointed but you, yeah. these two um, sets of waifs and strays come together because often the young men would write to him saying would you put in a good word with that widow I'd love to marry yeah, and then the widows always had more sense than to do it <laughs> but you get these long rather right. sad letters from late teenagers uh, <laughs> fancying themselves in love with right. a rich widow right just happens to be rich yeah, yeah. of course yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, he, he came to gather a sort of group around him and think of the likes of Ralph Sadler and his uh, uh, nephew, is it? Yes, Richard nephew. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, genuinely talented young men. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Ralph Sadler, who, who went on to be our man in, all mm. right through into the reign of Elizabeth I, yeah. da- died at a great age and very wealthy under Elizabeth I. He was, a, he was jailer to Mary, Queen of Scots. You know, he's mm. that sort of unspectacular, efficient guy. Yeah. And Cromwell clearly had an eye for spotting such people. Mm. And the nephew, Richard Cromwell, that, now that's very interesting because, of course, he, he wasn't born Richard Cromwell. His, oh, yeah, he is the, the son of Thomas Cromwell's sister mm-hmm. who married a Welsh gentleman called Morgan Williams. Mm. So, of course, he was Richard Williams. But then, after Morgan's death, Cromwell seemed to have adopted him, more or less right. as... I think to be a sort of elder brother to Cromwell's only son, young Gregory. And so Richard took the name Cromwell. And the importance of that is that he is the direct ancestor of another Cromwell in history, Oliver Cromwell, uh, who I think probably was pronounced Cromwell by that stage. Uh, And and so we've got two great Cromwells Mm. connected through Richard. Right. Same quiet, efficient, unspectacular chap. Right, uh, rather different from either Thomas or Oliver. Indeed, Oliver. Well, instead of the White Weimar, maybe your next project can be Oliver. <laughs> a bit, bit too late for me. A bit too late. Not my me. period. Historians <laughs> always say not, not my, my period. period yes. yes. Another one of the relationships. So, in the history of England, we have we are getting to the point where Edward VI is looking a bit peaky. Mm. So, um, one of the relationships, one of the careers we followed through is uh, Thomas Cranmer, and of course, I really enjoyed your book on Thomas Cranmer. Right. In fact, it's been my continual companion over the last year, actually. Mm. 
Um, and that was an important relationship as well, wasn't it? It was, uh, and a complicated one uh, because of another relationship, which is perhaps best to bring in as well, okay. and that's with Anne Bullen. Mm. Again, I've, I'm, I'm in my pretentious way call her Anne Bullen, right. because I think she was pronounced like that. <laughs> but the point is that uh, Anne Bullen and Thomas Cromwell have always been seen as allies, mm. and hence Cranmer, who gen- generally was an ally of Thomas Cromwell. But what struck me uh, increasingly as I looked at the documents is that this is the reverse of the truth. They loathed each other, Anne and Thomas Cromwell loathed each other for a very good reason, that he was the servant of Cardinal Wolsey and Anne had destroyed Cardinal Wolsey, regarded Wolsey as her enemy. And so I think for the rest of the relationship, it's cold to the point in the end of destruction. So that if anyone destroyed Anne by that time, Queen Anne, it was Thomas Cromwell, by by using the king's very frequent paranoia to his own advantage. That was one of the re- revelations of the book to me, I, absolutely. I guess the other thing, I, right or wrongly, I picked up was how central the relationship with Wolsey was yeah. to the rest of Cromwell's career. Yes, and the, and the clue there is heraldry, something we don't think much about these days unless we're real nerds. But mm. at the time, people could read heraldry as we read road signs, mm. and for the same reasons that uh, you woe betide you if you didn't read them wrong. Right. And what you'd read on Thomas Cromwell's coat of arms would be, he is a servant of Cardinal Wolsey. Right. He took the middle uh, element in Wolsey's arms and made it the central element of his too. And that's really significant because he, he, he did this. He registered these mm. arms after the Cardinal's death. When, when Anne Bullen was on the way to being queen. Uh, and so this is a real act of defiance against her. And she would have been so cross. Right. She would have recognised it. She, she would have realised what was going on. She would have read it, mm. absolutely read it. And mm. so back to Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer is definitely Anne Bullen's uh, client. Right. Very much so. He's a chaplain mm-hmm. to the Bullen family. And so that, I think that relationship between Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell was okay. rather awkward to right. start with. But their, their, their common interest in the Reformation, mm-hmm. the Protestant Reformation, brought them together. And then at her fall, uh, it is, it, again, quite a revelation to me, I hadn't realised this, that that estate I've already mentioned, Wimbledon, uh, that estate, Wimbledon, had been, of course, Thomas Cranmer's, because it was mm-hmm. the Archbishop of Canterbury's ancient estate, that was confiscated from him at Anne's fall and given to Thomas Cromwell. Right. It's as if it's a sort of fine, right? right. He'd been too loyal to right. Anne, and that's that's the punishment. Right. But I think after that, the relationship is really very close. So you think that punishment comes from Cromwell to as a to Cranmer or the King, King and Cromwell right. together? Okay. I think yeah. it, it, it's saying, look, you you you've just been it's too loyal, <laughs> and uh, some you've got to have some slap over right. the wrist. And I think it's losing the the, the wealthy manner of Wimbledon, right? And the, I think the other thing point uh, again, right there, wrong there, picked up was how much easier that actually Anne Boleyn's removal actually helped the progress of the Reformation. I don't know if I yeah, pick that up. That's right, exactly. That it, it just simplified all the relationships. Mm. It made Cranmer and Cromwell's relationship easier. It uh, stopped the Reformation being associated with Anne, mm. and there were so many people who loathed her. Yes. I mean, she really didn't have a party. Mm. She had the family, mm. and she had Henry VIII while he was in love with her. Mm. But there's, there is no Bonin party apart from that. So then the Reformation can proceed without this embarrassment mm. of the Queen. And she, she'd got clients, and they're, they're, they're 
preachers, Protestant preachers. Mm. But actually, apart from brave Cranmer, none of them really defended right. her. And so then the Reformation really took off. Much encouraged, I think, by the defeat of the great conservative rebellion of 1536, which mm -hmm. followed her death, right. the pilgrimage of grace, so obviously aimed at Cromwell and, and Cranmer. Mm. Uh, the rebels named them both. Mm. And incidentally, gave me another clue to the pronunciation of Crummel. Right, OK. Because on more or less day one of the rebellion, some rebels in Dent shouted that they we would crumb him and crumb him till he was never so crumbed. Right. And the joke doesn't work. If unless, it's crumb. No, it doesn't unless, work. you know, biscuits were crumbled rather than crumbled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, still, I stand by it. I, I'm sure you could be right. Mm. How close does Cromwell come to falling at that point? Very much so. Right. Uh, and the, there was a week, I think, in November 1536 where the king was about to throw him aside. Mm. And that's a profoundly significant moment. There's the, the king drafted a manifesto to issue to the rebels in Yorkshire. Right. And it named his councillors and defended them, except mm. Thomas Cromwell. Okay. And then it's printed, uh, and we've got the printed version against the manuscript, mm. and Cromwell's name appears. Right. So in that week or so, mm. uh, Cromwell had worked on the king... Uh, which you can do, you can manipulate this right. monstrous man if you mm. know how to do it. And uniquely in Henry's reign, Henry went to stay in a palace he'd not been in uh, and since he'd been a boy, Richmond Palace. Right. And it is the nearest palace to Thomas Cromwell's new house on the Thames at Mortlake. Oh, right. So I just think right. that this is too much of a coincidence right. and it's after that Cromwell is back. But for a moment... He right. was on the verge of being thrown to the wolves. Right. And that, which, of course, is something that Henry VIII is perfectly capable of doing. Yeah. What was the relationship like between the two of them, do you think? I think stormy. Right. Uh, and, it, and, and like his predecessor as great minister, Wolsey, he was valuable while he delivered the goods. Mm. And he was useful. Don't think the relationship was ever as close as between King Henry and Wolsey, mm. where Wolsey could apparently sort of more or less walk in the private apartments without being invited. Don't think it was ever like that. Right. But uh, it was intimate in the sense that they could have fiery rows. Yeah. And there's a famous story uh, by one, actually someone who disliked Thomas Cromwell intensely, mm. saying that, that you could hear the rows from the privy chamber uh, through in the main chambers of the palace. And then the, the, the row would get to some huge point and then it would cease, and Cromwell would walk out rubbing his cheek because right. the king had slapped him. Right. Uh, and also looking a bit... Uh, a smile on his face. Right. Because that's the, the, the intricacy of the relationship. The king would have to win right. when it got to that point in a shouting match, and so he must he would slap this, this jumped-up minister. But then everything could change. Right. Now, now one, he'd won, he'd won his point, and... Cromwell could do what Ralph Sadler once said was tempering him, right. bringing him round. So it is a very complicated relationship, but it's also terribly delicate. Right. And it just needs one major uh, thing to go wrong. And then that, that extraordinary quality of Henry VIII of turning utterly through 180 degrees from yeah. friendship to enmity yeah. would, would just click in. I was quite, as an amateur, I was very interested at this concept. They would have a slanging match, that um, you could have that open 
exchange with Henry VIII, because I suppose the view of him, I'm talking about Henry VIII, I'm really sorry, mm. but as a tyrant, that you could never have a debate with him that what he said go. But you could have those arguments. You could, you? yes. He was, very, he was very conscious of being a king in uh, a, a, a structure. Mm. And the structure was nobility, gentry, everybody else. Mm. But ministers are in the structure. And the nobility and gentry are quite interesting, particularly when they're sitting in Parliament, mm. because then their role was to be the king's natural counsellors. And they could say things to the king. Another extraordinary incident was that of uh, a, a very spirited gentleman from Warwickshire called Sir George Throckmorton. Right. And he's a member of Parliament. And in uh, the fifth, early 1530s, he before the marriage to Anne Bullen, he had a face-to-face row with the king, and Thomas Cromwell was present. And Throckmorton said to the king, it is said that you, your, your grace, have meddled with both the mother and the daughter. And, uh, and the king, totally thrown off, said, well, oh, never with the mother. <laughs> and Cromwell then came and said, not with the daughter either. <laughs> that always gets left out in uh, most books, actually. That was a great bit to read. Yes. But Cromwell said, oh, no, no, it's fine. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't say that. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. There, there are... There are it, mm. it's, it's not a despotism. It's mm. not a tyranny. Mm. There are horrible, brutal things that happen. And the king could be um, absolutely cruel. But there are limits within this. And, mm. and Cromwell was very good in, in playing with this. He was also the king's loyal servant, so he could get involved in the brutality and Mm. cruelty too. And you can't let him off that hook, I'm afraid. I was going to come to that, actually, of saying... um, I've read a couple of reviews, and I think that's one of the... uh, I think when you say yourself in the book that maybe there isn't as much of that side of Cromwell, which normally gets emphasised a lot, of course... Yeah. So have you let him off the hook? I may have done to some extent. On the other hand, it's the voices you listen to. And I think those slightly critical remarks are inspired by concentrating too much on the sufferings of one side. In other Mm. words, the Roman Catholic side. Mm. Uh, The Carthusian monks, some of whom were treated abysmally, abominably, very cruelly, to Thomas More. Bishop Fisher. But you look at the other side, and there's William Tyndall... Mm -hmm. uh, trapped into imprisonment in the Low Countries with the king's connivance, strangled. There are those who are burned at the stake. Uh, so th- there, are, there is brutality all round. Yeah. And Cromwell is an efficient minister, but he is only one of those tainted by those deaths of Fisher mm. and Moore. He is, he's not the only one. Yeah. So maybe I have been a more indulgent to him than others would like, but um, you have to remember that others would do the same to him, and they did. I thought that was a very interesting point. I think with David Starkey wrote that maybe everybody was complicit in this, that where is the morality when actually everybody was out to get each other? So where is the morality? You know, isn't everybody to blame in this? I think there's a lot to be said for that, yes. And, of course, there are things in in, in which you can can actually be defiant to the king, in in things which... Well, what concerns him is his dynasty and religion, and that's where the murderousness was. Right. But, for instance, his parliament defeated him on a scheme of poor law when he had actually, the king, had been uh, persuaded by Thomas Cromwell to go to the House of Commons and persuade them to pass the bill. And they didn't. And, of course, it's the rather the one thing you wish they had because yes. it was rather more generous than what emerged, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. Something of a tragedy. Yeah, they're, 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 it's the gentry and they, mm. don't, they don't want to cough up all the money. Yeah. So, in, the, in that sense, that this is, again, an example of how Henry VIII's reign is not a tyranny. Mm. It's it's a mixture. It's a negotiation. Mm. Very interesting. So, who um, 
Who drove the bus essentially between, is it Henry VIII's strategy and Cromwell implements, or is it a bit of both? What, who drives the bus? A bit of both. Uh, it depends what you're looking at. Foreign mm. policy, Henry VIII kept very much to himself. Right. Uh, he allowed Wolsey to deal with it, but he didn't allow Cromwell. Uh, and said on one occasion that uh, it wasn't appropriate for a man like Cromwell to right. run foreign policy. And in a sense, he was right, because foreign policy in the form of Anne of Cleves was brought what brought Thomas Cromwell right. down. But he did give him a free hand in the church. He gave him this extraordinary title, Vicegerent in Spirituals, which has never been used before, never been used again. And that was a sort of free hand in the church, the the sort of free hand that Wolsey had had on behalf of the Pope Mm. was now a free hand for uh, the king's powers. Now there, that's where Cromwell really stepped out of line and did things for himself that the king would not have initiated and I think that's probably one of the, the bits of poison that his enemies dropped in the king's ear when he did eventually fall. Right. Again, I think one of the themes of your book is that we've underplayed the importance of religion to Cromwell in the past. Yes, very much so. He's, he's a convinced Protestant, evangelical is what the word I use, from the early 1520s. It's, it's mysterious how he got there. John Fox claimed that when on one of his long journeys to Rome he read Erasmus's New Testament and that's where the doubt started. Mm. But the, the, the evidence is clear because of the things which he did which no secular cynical politician would have done because mm. they were too dangerous. Mm. Uh, promoting Tyndall's Bible to be the official Bible of the realm when the king had been implicit, complicit in killing Tyndall. That's mm. extraordinary putting diplomatic feelers and relationships out to Zurich, uh, a city which the king, on theological grounds, would have loathed. And that's a very important relationship for the future of English history, because that shaped the way English Protestantism would go, not towards Luther, but towards this Swiss set of cities. And that's his doing. So these are not the actions of a cynical man. These are the actions of a... Someone who has a religious agenda mm. and is not scared to promote it, yeah, which a cynical politician wouldn't have done. Indeed, because it would have been in his interest in the end. So how does he fall? What, what causes his downfall in? Anne of Cleves. Right. Anne of Cleves. Uh, and having been kept away from foreign policy, he put his both feet in here to get a wife, fourth wife, mm. for a man who would have six wives. Uh, and this was partly on selfish grounds that uh, what he didn't want as a successor to the lately deceased Jane Seymour was the daughter of an English nobleman. Right. Uh, that had happened before. Her mm-hmm. name was Anne Bullen. He didn't want another of them. Uh, but also, the, the Duchy of Cleves was really sort of scraping the barrel among right. foreign princesses. And nobody from Cleves listens to this programme. We were relieved yes, to yes, Apologies to the people, good folk of Cleves. <laughs> And that was because no other princess across the channel wanted to be Henry VIII's Mm. wife. Uh, But it was also because Cleves was interestingly diplomatically independent of the the Holy Roman Emperor. And actually this was a two-princess deal because there was another princess involved, the Lady Mary. This is Catherine of Aragon's daughter, Mm. who was surprisingly close to Thomas Cromwell. Mm. And she was going to be the wife of the Duke of Bavaria, who's another of these princes of the Holy Roman Empire opposed to the Habsburgs. Mm. So it looked 
brilliant. Hmm. Two princesses, nice exchange. One princess comes here, Anne of Cleves. The other, Mary, goes off to Bavaria. And who knows what history would have looked like. Yes. But the, the total unknown right. in this situation was Henry VIII, hmm. who uh, couldn't resist having a, a peek at Anne of Cleves when she arrived in Rochester from an upper window and was horrified, hmm. just t- took a gin her, absolutely. Hmm. And I find this myth very mysterious. And Henry VIII's tastes in women are, are mysterious. Uh, Anne, of, uh, Anne Boleyn was no beauty. And yet she captivated him. And then Anne of Cleves, poor soul, mm. who does not seem to have been a Flanders mare, not ugly, yeah. uh, totally repelled him. And, and cutting a long story short, he could not get out of the marriage and blamed Thomas Cromwell mm. for that. The only way he could get out of the marriage was by saying that he had been impotent with Anne. And he blamed Thomas Cromwell for that humiliation. And at that moment, you can... Pour any poison into the mm. king's ear that you like. And that is precisely what Thomas Cromwell's enemies did. Suddenly, all the poison they'd been aiming at the king's ears was going in. Started sticking. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I thought it was a fascinating point. And we, we ignore, don't we, those personal impacts on history. You know, a humiliated king has got to be a dangerous person to be dealing with. Yeah. This is a very personal uh, mm. set of politics. Yeah. And uh, a, ma- a man like Henry VIII at the centre of it matters tremendously, mm. his whims. And, of course, it's all about him. Mm. The whole whole machine is about him, even more than with most, most kings. Well, I have to say, I always think that when we judge Henry VIII, we tend to do it from a very 21st century perspective. He's a king. They are supposed to be dangerous. But I'm talking about Henry VIII again. Uh, yes, well, so. yes, let's not make modern comparisons. Indeed. Uh, one of the things you wrote, actually, was that he was suffering from deteriorating discretion and control, talking about Thomas Cromwell. Yeah. What was what was going on there? Was it just the Cleves, was it the Cleves fair or something else going on with him? All sorts of things were going on. And the, the trouble is with a minister of Henry VIII, you've got to keep on delivering the goods, and the goods uh, are coming off the production line at ever faster rate, and it's just desperate trying to keep up with the king's demands. Mm. Uh, There's the king's demands for money, there's the king's demands for glory, there's the reformation going forward, and uh, you get the sense of a man who who is beginning to lose control. His enemies are getting more bitter. Uh, Faction at court was getting more poisonous, and there is also the other factor of his beloved son Gregory. Mm. Now, um, no, we haven't, and mm. he, he's he's a big man in, in the mm. book in in a, in a curious way because you can see that he probably would have been a disappointment to a father less besotted with him. Right, uh, but he is also a major player on the stage because he married Jane Seymour's sister. Mm. He is the brother-in-law of King Henry VIII. Right. Yes. No. How how amazing is that? Yes. And this is an aspect of the story which I don't think has been emphasised mm-hmm. enough before. But it also means that the Cromwell family, now allied to the Seymours, are bound to be the enemies of all sorts of other people who mm-hmm. found the Seymours uh, uh, a jumped-up family too. Right. And then Gregory's in the middle of it, and you can see Cromwell making more and more mistakes of etiquette in his right. efforts to pr- push Gregory forward and promote Gregory uh, and there is, a, there is an obscure scandal, which is really important in the book, Don, mm-hmm. which I will not enlarge for your readers. Right, OK. Uh, get, we're going to spot it. It remains to be... Uh, OK. Uh, but what it mean, meant was that uh, Gregory needed some pretty urgent attention. Right. And uh, Cromwell 
really coped with this by promoting him even more, getting him made um, Knight of the Shire, that's a member of Parliament Mm. in the 39 Parliament, which is really too much for uh, uh, an 18-year-old who has just been involved in a bad scandal. Mm. Uh, I think that infuriated the gentry uh, of the county of Kent where Cromwell got him as Mm. MP, Knight of the Shire. And it's that sort of misjudgment which Mm. you can see more and more of at the last. Mm. Uh, It's getting very manic in the last 12 months. I thought it was also very interesting how the role of women in these relationships, so how often it is. So I think Gregory's uh, wife, after Cromwell's fall, she's very instrumental in protecting Gregory. Yes. from, And that seems to be a common theme. She, she emerged from me as a, as a real player. Right. I think she, she was a worthy adversary for Thomas, her father-in-law, and he would have thought so. There's a wonderful portrait of her, which we uh, present in the book, a gorgeous picture by Holbein, which is now in Spain. Uh, and you see this extraordinarily composed lady then mm. at the age of 19 or so, already with two children by a previous mm. marriage and about to be pregnant for the first time by Gregory. And what a face. Mm. Uh, she she did save Gregory after Thomas's death and got him a peerage, right, yeah. uh, a new Lord Cromwell with a different um, peerage. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in that sense, Thomas Cromwell did achieve his aim because mm. his son did found a noble dynasty and they lasted until 1687 mm-hmm. uh, with various peerage titles uh, but it's it's elizabeth there elizabeth seymour who i think is a is a crucial player and i i very much enjoyed meeting her right and there are letters from her mm. and uh they're they're good fun she she's she's not a fool right okay so i've got a few general questions to finish up i'm gonna throw a couple of quotes at you if you don't mind mm-hmm. um Perhaps of all the mean and dastardly wretches that ever died, this was the most mean and dastardly. As right. William Cobbett. So, um, oh, yes. And then there's a recent person um, quote. It would be sad if Thomas Cromwell, who's surely one of the most unscrupulous figures in England's history, was to be held up as a role model for future generations. So how did we get to this very negative view <laughs> of, uh, of Cromwell? Well, William, William Cobbett, we, with whom you started, mm. um, hated the Reformation. Right. And also said some very nasty things about Thomas Cranmer, another man I rather like. Yes. Uh, and uh, he saw the Reformation as a confidence trick played by the English upper classes on the, the good folk of England, the stout yeoman. If you hate the Reformation, you're going to hate Thomas Cromwell. Right. And from his time of his death, people hated him. Mm. They were Catholics. Mm. Protestants adored him. Mm. I mean, he became a hero of the Reformation, along with Cranmer. So there are, there are two narratives side by side up to the Victorian period, when I think that the, 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 the nice Cromwell narrative got lost. Right. And that's because everyone got very upset by the ruins of monasteries that they started right. visiting. The great tourist industry of Victorian England is Mm. clambering over monasteries, and and who wouldn't be crossed with the man who Mm. looks as if he's at the centre of it? So it's Cromwell, the the ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit in that Marie Lloyd Victorian musical song. That's part of this uh, this Uh anti story uh, which you get in Cobbett quite extreme version there, and you, you get in quite a lot of modern biographies who very deliberately saw him as a secular, cynical figure mm. in a world of 
innocent um, religious chaps like Sir Thomas More. Yes. And then you get the Robert Bolt play, very influential. Yes, Man for All Seasons, seasons. indeed, yeah. Great uh, play, though. Yes, with everyone looks, everyone looks like the portraits. Uh, And Robert Bolt as Thomas More is noble and so on, and um, Cromwell is not noble at all. Mm. It's, It's exacerbated nowadays by... Two, the two Holbein portraits in the same room in New York, the Frick collection, right. either side of a fireplace. There's Thomas Cromwell, there's Thomas Moore. Right. And Thomas Moore looks noble, yes. ma- like a martyr. And Thomas Cromwell looks like a pudgy civil servant about to lose yeah. his temper. And uh, what's interesting about those two portraits, these Holbeins, which are both original, is that the Moore portrait was much altered as it was being painted. I love that. Yeah. As if Sir Thomas More was saying, well, I don't think I look quite noble enough yet. <laughs> Can you make me look a bit more thoughtful? And, so, and, the, and the Cromwell wasn't like that. Yes. And the Cromwell picture hung in Thomas Cromwell's own house. Now, that, again, is, I think, rather admirable. You know, he must have looked at it yes. and said, right, all right, that's me. Yeah. All right, and I'll take that. Rather like his um, collateral descendant Oliver said, warts and oh, all, yes. about a portrait. There's a lovely bit in the book again. I'm sorry, I'm being far too complimentary, but um, I remember reading John Guy's uh, biography of Thomas More and him making the point that Thomas More saw it as his job to mould the image and his reputation. Mm. And therefore, you know, what you're saying about the, the his image being changed is absolutely... Uh, what he would have done, and and yeah. we've kind of fallen for it, haven't yeah, we? We have, we have, and and the Bolt play was marvellous in mm. that. It's a great work of drama, but now it's been replaced by another great work of drama, yes. Hilary Mantel, from the novels on stage and on screen, and that's been a, a, a huge boost to Thomas mm. Cromwell's reputation, and does, not done me any harm. I'm I'm glad to say I started on the Cromwell project before I knew of Hilary's right. Oh, okay, novels. so you, you're right. I'm not cashing in. <laughs> Though we have become great friends because we do see things oh, you? You've in the spoken, same way. Spoken, right? oh, we have, mm. yes, a lot, and compared notes. Uh, but she's a novelist, and, and that's mm. what she keeps having to emphasise. She's yeah. not writing history. Mm. She's writing a novel about a historical period, which is something very different. Yes. Uh, and it's a marvellous recreation, a sort of parallel Tudor universe which is full of insight. She also picked up independently that thought about Cromwell and Anne Bullen being mm. enemies. Yeah. And that's a big theme in novel number two. And actually, the, the, the febrile nature of Anne's personality is something she... Is, it was really interesting in yeah. her novels, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, is it slightly depressing? So, you know, here you are, you're a very eminent um, uh, professor, you know, you've worked for decades on this sort of stuff, um, and yet... Novelists have such an extraordinary, and filmmakers and Robert Bolt, Henry Mantel have such an extraordinary impact on people's perceptions of history. Mm. And, you know, in, over the long term, no doubt you will have a bigger impact because people will be taught this stuff at school. Is it slightly depressing that you. Um... Not depressing at all. I and mean, we've we all got our own jobs. And novelists do what they do, um, plays do what they do, and hurrah for the human spirit. But mm. uh, we, we can all appreciate all these things in different ways. Mm. Um, but I'm very pleased that Hillary has so radically yes. <laughs> turned things round on Thomas Cromwell. He will never be an, an, an unflawed hero. Mm. He's not that sort of guy. But uh, it's it's the flaws which are interesting and make him a three-dimensional person. He's not a two-dimensional villain, mm. nor will he ever be a plaster saint. 
So who's uh, one more question about uh, on that? Because actually, I thought that in Robert Bolt's in the film, actually Thomas Cromwell doesn't come across too badly. But what do you think is the best representation we've got so far in the film about Thomas Cromwell? Well, I'm just looking behind you uh, where I see Kenneth Williams as Thomas no. Cromwell <laughs> in yes. uh, Carry On Henry. Uh, no, that's not the best. But, no, Sid James is not our best Henry VIII. Uh, no, 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 no. But uh, an interesting take. Well, has there been one? Uh, perhaps Shakespeare and Henry right. VIII? Well, he's not, not a big character, mm-hmm. but uh, there's an interesting portrayal. Otherwise... Well, Bolt, Bolt is worth watching mm. as long as you see where he's coming from. It seems to me that Bolt's representation of him is of a bureaucrat who wants to get a good job is not unsympathetic towards Thomas More, yeah. but in the end has to do what he has to do. Well, that's, that's absolutely mm. right. And uh, the, there is that element. He, he, he tried to get mm. More to come round. Yeah. He made his imprisonment a bit more tolerable than Henry VIII would have done. But in the end... He set up the trial, yeah. and uh, you get a slight sense of embarrassment afterwards. Right, and, and uh, in the Cromwell circle, that they they found it quite difficult to talk about Thomas mm. More uh, in, in years after that. Not like Bishop Fisher, for instance. Right, they were on one or more occasions. There would be Bishop Fisher, and the other would be the right. phrase. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so there's clearly a sense that. Hmm. Yeah, it hasn't. Uh, that it's yeah, not the best thing the we company. ever did. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, some Thomas Cromwell up for me. What his his achievements? Um... Pulling England and the Tudor realms into a single enterprise, promoting a reformation which might not otherwise have happened, and being a, a good servant of Cardinal Wolsey as well as Henry VIII. Hmm. Excellent. Um, and I don't often get a chance to talk to somebody like you, so um, let me ask you for a recommendation from two areas. Two best history books you've ever read. Two best history You've books. read a lot of history books in your life. I Do you want me to fear. talk for a while? Cavi, <laughs> <laughs> What history books would I uh, recommend to someone? I think uh, for a, a, a portrait of ultimate evil, Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler right. is one remarkable one. And I'll stick with moderns because, uh, equally, uh, a heartening book to be read after the Kershaw biography is Tony Jutt's book called Post-War, which is a story of all Europe from 1945 until Tony Jutt died, sadly, five years ago or so. And it is the most heartening story of a continent in ruins in 1945 becoming uh, a place of peace, and construction and creativity mm. in the 50, 60, 70 years which followed 1945. And, and it's beautifully told. Uh, it, it covers the continent with elegance. So those are examples of the historian's craft, which I particularly like. Great, good recommendation. So, and last question, we share a, an interest in, in churches. Uh, two churches that may mean a lot to you that you'd recommend men somebody go and see. Oh, yeah, that's an even Why? more difficult. Is that question. really? Okay. I love the thousands of them, but no, <laughs> there are two. There are two, and they're they're both quite minor. One was my father's old church in Suffolk, a place called Weatherden, mm-hmm. uh, which was a beautiful medieval church with something from every period, from the twelfth century okay. through to the present day, uh, and it's it's just like a, a lovely little textbook 
of English church architecture. And its churchyard is also lovely because my right. father resisted turning it into a lawn. It's still hand-mown right. with gravestones at angles. So there's that. Then there's a tiny, tiny church in Norfolk called Houghton on the Hill. Do you know that? Well, yes, I went to say it. Um, uh, I turned up one day. I'd just been made redundant. was free from my previous job. And I was looking for a church at Pickenham, actually. So oh, I'm yes. talking too much. Yeah. Took the wrong turn went and sort of signed to this church. Yeah. And there was this church, a chap called Bob in it. Oh, who, Bob. You know, looks Wonderful like Bob. Probably David. older than the church. Yes, yes. Um, and yes, will you tell us? Well, I mean, Houghton on the Hill was uh, a virtual ruin. It was abandoned as 1920s, I think. And it was just... Uh, very isolated, very neglected. The young went and smashed it up. Uh, it was in an appalling state. And this marvellous local farmer called Bob Davy took pity on it and said, I'm going to rescue this church. And so single-handed, he cleared the churchyard. He showed that it was wanted. He raised money for a roof. And uh, all that was put in place. And they rescued this apparently useless church in the middle of nowhere with no congregation. Mm. And as they got to the final stages of restoring it, they found the interior was covered in the most wonderful early wall paintings. And there they are, they're being, they're being still uh, uncovered bit by bit. And it's full of love and life. Mm. And that, that sums up to me what uh, 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 the best of a country church. Yeah. It remains a place of tranquility, where, which people appreciate, even if they have no religious faith as such. And it's a story of rebirth as well. I love that. It's, mm. it's, it's a marvellous place. Yes. Paris Church is a lovely when they show the, uh, the history. I mean, like the one you're talking about, where they're doing, with a little bit of everything, they're battered around, they've been through this, that, yep. other, but yep. they're there at the heart of the community yet. Yes. And I agree. Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, fantastic. Mm. And, uh, and yes, thank you. Pleasure. Nice talking to you.